Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. J.J., what is the most delusional fantasy you've ever had for your life? Um, I mean, that's a hard question. Be, from- you're an accomplished guy. I try to be. I'm talking about unrealistic. Well, I mean, I still think most things are realistic. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the bad part. It's like, that's, that's I, the I still live in the delusion. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I mean, we all know that I'm 5'4 on a good day. Like, on like, like when I'm 5'4 wet. Yeah, is when, that, is heat, that something when that heat has expanded my body. <laughs> I, I'm 5'4 on a good day. But I really, really thought maybe I could be a professional volleyball player. <laughs> Are you serious? You really did? I did. I How old were you? Last year. <laughs> you know, if I, I just play, watched I what played, I ate, do you know that I actually I, can do this. I played on my college volleyball team for about a week? <laughs> so really, yeah, until I because I didn't get scholarship for volleyball, but I got scholarship for singing, and so I quit to sing. Anyway, I've always wanted to be an Olympian, and in yeah. my heart, I can, you love that you're crazy about I the Olympics. I love the Olympics, and in my heart, I still feel like I can do the splits, but I like I can't, <laughs> and so it's like you know. Growing up, it was always like, can I be a gymnast? Or yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I still am holding out. I mean, I've t- I think I've talked about this before, but I'm still holding out hope to make some national curling team. Like, I feel like curling <laughs> is my last shot at the Olympics <laughs> because it's one of those things where... I you're mean, down there with the, skill. the stone. Like, it takes a lot of skill. Yeah. But when you play curling, like, outside of the Olympics, they actually, like, put a keg on the ice and tap it. Like, I feel like... Are you being serious? Yeah. It's part of the culture. Yeah. And That's so... Amazing. That's like where that I fits. still feel like my body fits a tapped keg on ice. And so I feel like I still have... And you're have graceful. You have to have the sort oh, of ballerina legs. Yeah. Because yeah, you, really you'll watch do. those guys. They're, yeah. they're moving funny. I'm like a puma. I kind of just, just trot around and float like a butterfly and sting like a tractor. But I'm always kind of like I'm ready to be in the Olympics. And I don't know what that looks like. So you say delusion. I say aspiration. And I still think at some point there's there's going to be something. I may not be – now I've kind of moved a little bit away from Olympian to like going to the Olympics. Just, so that's like – world champion. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'll actually be an Olympian, but truthfully, like that was always kind of like I want to be in the Olympics and pretended like I could one day, but there's no way. I wondered <laughs> about professional cycling. Really? Yeah, like in my mid thirties, which uh, is, by the way, that's they're done. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that didn't even get awakened in me until I was like, your window's gone. <laughs> Years ago, I rode my bike across the country. Uh-huh. So eight to. 14 hours of cardio mm-hmm. every day for seven weeks, mm-hmm. riding the bike. I come back to Portland, mm-hmm. and I'm lightning fast, mm-hmm. but I'm still 35 pounds overweight. Uh-huh. I think I lost 30 pounds doing it, and uh-huh. I'm still like 35 pounds of fat. Uh-huh. And so I come along these like semi-pro racers, because they're all over here, and they're, they're running at like, I don't know, 21, you know, for an average workout, uh-huh. 21 miles per hour. You know, average bicycle is probably doing like 13 or 15. I just, I just squeak up, <laughs> squeak up next to them. And they'd be like, look at this fat guy. They'd be like, oh, man, you're doing so good, man. It's like, this is story. You're like, oh, you're so encouraging. I'm like, thanks. You know, I've just, I just picked up this, my uncle's bike. <laughs> I do that thing. And they're like, all right, well, it's good talking to you. You keep working out. And then they'd speed up, but I'd speed up with them. And I'd be like, okay, man, I'm just going to keep working out. <laughs> and I would just, like, after five minutes, I'd just fly off. I'd just fly off. You know, they never felt like I was in shape. They always were like, yeah, I yeah. have really 
lapsed. Yeah. I'm not a good yeah. athlete. That lasted about three weeks, and then, <laughs> and then I no. went back to normal. Yeah. But it was really fun. Gone. Yeah. It was fun to be good at something for yeah. a while. Anyway, I say that because Craig Ross wrote a book called Do Big Things, and he takes these companies that have not delusional fantasies, because they have yeah. to be realistic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think about Elon Musk. Yeah. You know, they're trying to put somebody on Mars. They're trying to create a solar grid for the entire country. They're trying to do incredibly big yeah, things. Make the a Hyperloop. huge impact. Yeah. yeah. And how do you take an organization and say, okay, that's not just a big vision. We're actually going to get it done. Yeah. And there are stages to doing that. So if you're a leader and you're the visionary type, because I'm the visionary type, and we, we opened StoryBrand by saying we will be a $100 million company. Yeah. We <laughs> actually believe still that double-digit percentage, at least 10% of all marketing, advertising, and graphic design will someday be filtered through StoryBrand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I have to come to us. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know. And we put a plan in motion, right? But how do you take that giant vision yeah. and say, let's do this? Yeah. How do you break it down into the steps? And so Craig Ross talks about this in his book, Do Big Things, and he talks about this in this interview. So if you're somebody who has big vision and you want to get your team aligned and heading in the right direction, Craig's going to tell us how to do it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Craig Ross. Craig Ross, welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast. Thank you, Donald. Happy to be with you. You've got a book coming out August 28th called Do Big Things. And while it sounds simple, it's actually not so easy to do big things. I know a lot of our listeners dream big. They know how to have giant aspirations and huge goals and wildly important goals, as Covey would say, but they don't know how to get them done. And you've got a book that basically walks us step-by-step on how to accomplish huge goals. Is that right? Precisely. You have 20 years of working with teams, studying teams that have been doing those big things, decoding reverse engineering, and then putting it into this book. You got it. I've read Elon Musk's biography this past summer, and putting a man on Mars and launching satellites and taking the country to solar energy, and you just wonder how in the world are these people, I know what it means to dream that big, but how in the world are they putting together so many teams that are actually doing it? I'm wondering a couple things. First, what's the problem with a team that doesn't know how to do big things? What is this costing us if we don't know this stuff? That's crossing at multiple levels, Donald. I mean, frankly, this just happened the other week. Speaking with a leader, I'm going to call him Sam, CEO of her company. We begin the discussion. He's talking about all the typical high-performance management stuff. So he's process, he's got that. they got strategy. they got talent. But as you talk with him and we build affinity, Donald, his voice cracks. And you peel back those layers a little bit more, and you find out this guy's working 60 hours a week, sometimes 70. They're behind target. They just lost their customers, so the resources are dwindling. And his team has basically succumbed to the three enemies of fulfillment. They're distracted, they're hopelessly stressed, and they're disconnected from what matters most. But to top it all off, and this is the painful part, is as we work with teams and equip them to do big things, where they start at is then this guy, Sam, he's actually going at home at night exhausted, and he's giving his family leftovers. So this is affecting communities. This is affecting our world. And really, nobody deserves that. So this book, Do Big Things, is written for the people like Sam, their teams, the ones who are bleeding for their organizations because they believe two things. They believe what they're doing is important, and they believe in the people on their team. They're not willing to sacrifice their values in order to get to where they need to go. I run a company, and you know it gets easy to kind of go off track a little bit. We're definitely not stressed, 
But where you hit me with those three things is disconnected from what matters most. It is so easy to kind of wander off that path. So I'm really curious about your seven steps to do big things. Will you share them with us? First step is you got to commit to the human imperative. Bottom line is when you think about a framework in terms of how teams do big things, we're talking about the thinkings and the actions that teams are undertaking so often. And this is going to, I'm going to sound like a heretic here. So I'm, I'm hoping we keep your listeners engaged. So often people are talking about trust. They're talking about collaboration. They're talking about empowerment. Those are actually outcomes. As we've studied the teams that do big things, it's really clear that specifically with their thinking and their actions, they're actually creating more trust. They're creating greater collaboration. No team is going to do big things until the team members care about each other. The human imperative is to live our values with one another. That's that's the imperative. And teams everywhere that are trying to deliver on their business imperative without living their human imperative and committing to it aren't getting anywhere. Imagine we go to a baseball game and it's first inning and this guy comes up to bat. It's your team. You're cheering for him. And he hits the ball, goes in the outfield, looks like it's going to go, and he runs straight to second base. You're thinking this guy's bonkers. And of course, he gets out. Then the next guy gets up, and he does the same thing. He's making contact with the ball, but he goes to second base. Does this mean getting our culture straight, focusing on the culture of the people who are going to actually try to accomplish these big things? Is that what we do first? And what is an exercise? I mean, right now, you know, I'm talking to you from Portland, Oregon. We actually flew our entire staff from Nashville to Portland for a month. Some of them come in and out for a week or two weeks at a time, but everybody's here for a month if they want to be just to sort of reset the entire company as we go into a different mode. And part of it was we wanted to spend time with each other. We're going to go on a camping trip this week, you know, all that kind of stuff just to, I'm hoping, focus on the human imperative to get to know each other, trust each other, care about each other. Are we on the right track here? Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? You're doing the right thing. The only other piece I'd add to that, when you guys are up there, I would encourage you, encourage you to remove time as the variable. A lot of people are under the belief that in terms of being who we really want to be, authentic and true to our values, that we have to spend time getting to know each other. I would challenge that premise. Really? In our book. Absolutely. Now, time is a variable. What do you focus on instead of time? Quality of interaction? We focus on what people are doing with the time they have and then collapse that into shorter bites. And I'm telling you what, most teams, and you know this to be true, they're going to fly off to Portland, and then they're going to tell each other they care about each other. And then they'll go back to work, and then it's all going to be transactional. It's going to be about just getting the job done. And so collapse what we're doing in Portland, and let's bring it into our daily meetings. You know, I can't take responsibility for our incredible culture. we got a, a COO named Tim Schur who actually likes people, and he built it. I just enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> but we do benefit from it. I mean financially, revenue, profit. Of course, I'm joking about not caring about people. But the more work we do, we put into building a family-type environment, I'm just shocked at the return we get. So I'm a believer in what you're talking about for number one. Number two, embody success and leverage failure. What do you mean by that? Yeah, this is a really important step as well. A lot of people, a lot of leaders, a lot of teams are going to think it's just about confidence. It's all about optimism. Let's talk about that for a moment. A friend of mine, Mike Bloomfield, he was a former astronaut. I mean, he did several shuttle missions, was the captain of Atlantis in 2002 mission. Imagine you're going to work with Mike. You take your seat in this craft that weighs 4.5 million pounds as you're sitting in the launch pad. Your whole body shakes as you're lifted up off the earth. For the next eight minutes, your craft is going to burn a ton of fuel every second. You go from zero miles an hour to 17,500 miles per hour. I mean, at the end of this thing, you're going 1,000 miles per hour every 15 seconds. I asked Mike, he's telling me the story. I said, Mike, come on, Mike, I'm macho. Weren't you ever scared? 
I mean, come on, Mike, weren't you ever nervous? And he looked at me and said, trust in the process. When you build a solid process, all that fear, the anxiety, butterflies are still there, but you trust your process. Even the guys at Apollo 13, we know that story, right? You talk about teams that do big things. Success changed, but those guys came back to earth. They got around the moon and came back to earth. When Mike and other teams that are doing big things, they embody success because they have a process for thinking and acting in all circumstances. I'm reading a book right now. It's called Psycho-Cybernetics, and it just talks about the importance of the imagination and sort of meditation practices, if you will. They don't call it that. But just imagining yourself having accomplished some kind of goal, it sounds all wishy-washy, but really what they're saying is that your subconscious is going to head in that direction if you can picture it, that your subconscious actually doesn't speak English. It speaks in images and feelings. And when you imagine yourself in a situation, it doesn't make it happen automatically, but your subconscious will head toward that direction, and it's much more likely that it'll actually happen. When you say embody success, even if your team hasn't succeeded, are you talking about something like that, where you sort of act as if you are worthy of accomplishing this goal or have what it takes to accomplish this goal or have already accomplished this goal? Is that what you're talking about? In a way. I love your question because, fortunately, mindfulness is becoming more common in the workplace. It's more acceptable, which is huge. The challenge is that we have to work together, don't we? And I don't see in the future where teams are going to do group meditation. Because we can't do that, then I love to ask leaders as we're doing the assessment work and, and serving organizations and teams. I say, what's your process to ensure that your team is thinking and acting under all these different scenarios in a way that does accomplish what you just outlined for us, Donald? It moves us and mobilizes our hearts and minds in the direction we need to go. Are you talking about something like a four disciplines of execution, a system that you would put in place in order to get stuff done? Is that what you're talking about here? Close, but I think it's going even beyond that, which, you know, I love what you're referencing. We're going to take it a step beyond, and we need to make it simple, simple, simple. This is what the teams that do big things are doing. It's practical and simple. And so as we move through the rest of this framework, you're going to see that while when we hit failure, for example, in our book, we talk about what we call the accountability reflex. In a lot of teams, as you know, something wrong, you know, customer calls, cancels an order, and people are perhaps stunned. Teams that do big things, they've gotten ahead of it. They embody success. They've identified how they're going to think and act in certain situations. And then they know exactly what to do, whether they're with their team physically uh, or they're they're ready. Precisely. Okay. Three, choose to contribute, activate, and connect across the business. How's that work? You know, you think about it. Experts say that the average person is making 35,000 decisions a day. It doesn't take you and I long, you know, to read any sort of or follow any media in, in terms of what experts are saying out there. They're saying, hey, you got to equip your team to make better decisions. Well, as we look at teams that are doing big things, we notice that they're actually making three very specific decisions more effectively than others. We call the first one the contributor decision. And that's really straightforward. It's the decision to bring my best to this situation and this interaction with you. Now, you and I know both know that there's a lot of people that are doing that conditionally. I'm going to wait for you to bring your best before I bring my best, and it's killing them. Second decision is what we call the activator decision. It's the decision to bring out your best in this interaction. I'm going to set you up for success. Now, we've all been a part of teams that have done big things. So when we look back, it's like, man, you had my back. The third decision is after we're making the contributor decision, the activator decision, it's the connector decision. Dr. Cloud, in his book, Power of Others, he talks about, he says, you know, 
You ever watch everybody in the airplane when the plane lands? What do people do? They take out their cell phones, and if they follow the rules, they take it off airplane mode. And what happens in that moment is that cell phone automatically connects with the network. And suddenly, that person sitting in that airplane seat becomes really, really smart. But what's happening is teams are not connecting with other teams within organizations. It's a choice. It's the connector decision. And we need to make that collectively so we can connect to our network of teams within our enterprise. When we do that, we can do big things. They've got to be talking to each other. Got to be talking to each other. We'll be back in just a moment for the rest of my conversation with Craig Ross. Here we are with another segment of Marketing Mythbusters with Kula Callahan. Hi, Kula. Hello. There you are in your Wonder Woman pose. Absolutely. What is today's myth? Today's myth is this. Your customers are ready to buy from you immediately. But they are. No, they're not, You Don. don't have to woo them. Yes, you do. Here's <laughs> the thing. Most people don't buy on initial impulse. So when people come to your website and aren't familiar with your brand, they aren't familiar with the problem that you help them solve mm -hmm. or how you can make their life better, they likely are not going to take that risk and make a purchase from you right off the bat. That's right. So what you need to do is actually on-ramp them to your products or service so they are more familiar with how you add value to their life, what problems that you help them solve. They're educated around what your brand does for them. Yeah. And so it lowers that barrier to resistance for them to take that risk and make that purchase. Yeah. I break it down into phases. A person discovers a brand, and it's not that they discover your logo or your cool billboard. They discover you based on a problem that you solve. They're hungry. That's so important. They're hungry. You have lunch. Right. Their house is dirty. You have a cleaning service. Their toilet's broken. You can fix it. They discover you because of a problem that you solve. So the first key is to make sure they actually discover you by saying, we solve this problem, being known for it. Then you begin to solve some of their problems. We like a lead generating PDF or right. something where you kind of stake claim to the territory of that problem. Right. In this area or with this problem, we are going to be the go-to people. And We're you, the experts. Yeah, you enter into their brain as the experts on that. They're still not buying anything from you. But next time they have that problem, at that point, they make a commitment, totally. which is a purchase. Mm -hmm. And then if you do great customer service and you deliver extremely well and you provide more value than they possibly imagine, they become an advocate. Yep. So it's discovery and then testing and then commitment and then advocacy, the four sort of stages right. of that engagement. And that's relationships. Totally. And this is where most of our customers go wrong is that they don't define a problem that they solve for their customers. Right. So everything that these brands are saying to their customers and prospects is just getting completely ignored because A, it's either confusing or B, it doesn't help their customers solve something that they're dealing with. Yep. And that's why people go shopping, if you will, mm -hmm. for brands to help them because they have a problem and they need to resolve it. I would even argue just relationally that most of our relationships that we think are, oh, I just love this person and this is my best friend for life, they actually are meeting a need for you. They're totally. meeting some sort of survival need. If it's romantic, the girl's attracted to the guy with the broad shoulders, you know what I mean? Because there's like, <laughs> yes. all this. why? Because like, I need somebody to defend my babies or yeah. someday, right? Or yeah, whatever, totally. those, you know, those kinds of things or vice versa. And it's the same with brands. I agree. We need to be known as somebody who is useful to somebody to solve a problem. Absolutely. And if you're not useful to somebody to solve a problem and they haven't figured that out, which is moves at the speed of relationships, mm -hmm. and you run into the room and ask them to marry you, they're done. 
They're totally. not going to. <laughs> there are very few impulse purchases comparatively yeah. in Absolutely. the marketplace. There are people who make impulse purchases. You and I have both made impulse right. purchases. That's very rare. Usually mm-hmm. I saw something, you know, that could be really neat. That could make me a better person or yeah. make more people yeah. like me or help me have a better camping trip or whatever. Totally. And then I think about it for a little while and then yeah. I buy, make the purchase. So we want to be able to put those steps in place and sort of formalize that process. Absolutely. What we're describing is a sales funnel. Mm -hmm. And there are two aspects where StoryBrand helps with sales funnels. What we do is we train people who can help you create a sales funnel. So we call them StoryBrand Guides. Kula is actually director of the entire guide program. They are all under her. We have unbelievably smart guides who come to Nashville for four days. They get certified to become a marketing guide and help you create a sales funnel. You can shop these people at clarifyyourmessage.com. We get nothing, by the way. If you hire them and pay them to create a sales funnel for you, we get nothing. They just paid us a fee to get certified, and we keep in touch with them to make sure they're doing a really good job. Go to clarifyyourmessage.com and hire one of our story brand guides. They can actually create a sales funnel, that is, clarify the message on your website, create a lead-generating PDF, capture an email address, on-ramp people with strategic emails, mm-hmm. and then create a sales letter that closes the deal All that can happen in your sleep if you hire somebody who knows how to do it and who knows how to do it well, and our people know how to do it well. So two things. If you want to clarify your message and you want to create a sales funnel, go to clarifyyourmessage.com. And if you are a marketing savant, if you believe (laughs) you are the smartest marketing person on the planet... We want you. We want you. (laughs) Sign up at storybrand.com slash guide. Storybrand.com slash guide. Become one of our certified guides. But the rest of you... Go get a sales funnel. She ain't going to marry you until she gets to know you. (laughs) (laughs) You should trademark that. Thanks so much, Kula. Thank you. All right, I want to keep going, though. Number four, exercise your barrier-breaking authority. What do you mean by that? Yeah, get a chance to brag about one of our our clients, Tillamook is a, a dairy co-op up in the northwest you're actually really close to them right oh i've now. been believe me i've watched them make cheese and i've eaten their ice cream good stuff it's awesome stuff and and i mean you're talking about a brand that's as, as recognizable as iconic as, as coca-cola up there in the northwest was well, we supported their team their organization with these seven steps in the do big thing framework one of the things and patrick Kreitzer, a friend of mine ceo he'll tell you the same story a couple of years back, they were doing their forecasting. They were using the futures market, and they grossly underestimated, not because they misinterpreted the data, but what they didn't know was going to happen. Nobody did. They started 2014, and the dairy prices just shot through the roof. And suddenly, they're starting the year $40 million in the hole. As you all know, and Patrick said, hey, I've been in a lot of places where people put their hands up. They start blaming each other. They play the victim role. Teams that do big things exercise their barrier-breaking authority. And what's that authority? Donald, it's that understanding that we actually all have the ability to choose our response to anything that happens to us. And you and I both know that there's teams that are suffering because they've been conditioned this hierarchical approach. Even though they're being told they're empowered to make decisions, because the system around them, their teammates, they don't have this collective language, they don't have this process for success, they're acquiescing, they're giving up that authority, to choose how they respond. They also probably think that challenges aren't supposed to happen. So when a challenge happens, it's a closed door. When, If you look at the world that way, you're not going to get anything done ever. You're talking about this, the agency to say, hey, there's going to be challenges, we're going to overcome them. Right on. And what, what Patrick and his team want to do, instead of just doing the traditional leadership stuff, which you and I would do with our organization, right? Cut costs, raise prices, 
drive efficiencies. They did those things, but they also went to the team and they said, what can we do more of? What can we learn? All the important questions that you and I are thinking and therefore our actions. Patrick says, now you go back. He says, we, we almost hit our budget. They made up $40 million and says, here's the key. It was our breakthrough year because that's the year we learned we could be a premier brand. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and without the $40 million challenge, they wouldn't have had to bundle together and charge through this thing and reinvent themselves, I bet. Precisely. All right, number five, focus on what matters. I love this one, by the way. What I would encourage, and this is what teams that do big things, step number five, focus on what matters. It's the business and it's also the people. It's who am I with so we can build stronger people, stronger partnerships together so we can deliver the performance that matters. Well, go into the people thing a little bit. Give me some real-life examples here because we've just had a series of conversations at our company about how should we be having lunch with folks who aren't aligning with our goals, they're not really helping us advance things, should we be returning emails at the expense of important emails we need to be working on, but, you know, returning emails from people who are requesting things that we don't do. How much do we focus on the human relationships aspect versus realizing these things aren't advancing our goals and they're bogging down our mental bandwidth? Are you telling me that it's worth doing those things anyway? Explain to me a little bit what you mean. The answer is we need to do that as much as the business needs us to do it. No one's suggesting that every single meeting I'm talking about that human component. What we are suggesting is if you're, well, a lot of people are doing it. They're waiting for the team to be dysfunctional, and then they're focusing on people. And the teams that are doing big things, let's put it this way. Let's go a layer deeper that's really, really affecting everybody right now. I'm going to make something up theoretical, and that's tongue-in-cheek. Imagine two people are standing at a fence, and one person brings up politics and they happen to be of a persuasion of one political party. And the other person is thinking to themselves, this guy's crazy. This guy's a complete idiot. Because what have those two people done? They focus on what they believe, and whatever we believe, we will find more evidence to reinforce that belief system. You will see teams fall apart, because what begins to happen is they're focused on what they don't like and what they do like, what they respect and don't respect about each other. And as soon as I do that, just like what's happening in our country right now, yep. and in a lot of countries, it becomes divided. That's interesting because we really just pitched a candidate at a very high national level on this idea. You're not going to fix the Republican-Democrat divide. You're not going to fix it. You have to change the story. You have to get everybody looking elsewhere and stop feeding that narrative in order to affect change. And I think you're backing that up right now. And you know what, Donald? Everybody wants it. Oh, man, they're hungry for it. Yeah, this is about elevating humanity. And I'm telling you what, the generations that are coming behind us are going to insist on it. And we're seeing it over and over again. The teams, Pixar is a great example, right? So they have a process. They're a team that does big things. Everybody knows about them in the movie industry. They have a process where people can bring, literally bring bad ideas for movies. And they focus on how to make it work versus focusing on what's bad about that idea, focusing on this guy keeps bringing bad ideas. What it comes down to is are we focusing on what matters most? And what matters most is what I respect about you and how the heck are we going to make this work? I love it. Boy, that takes some discipline, too. It takes some discipline to say that's not a battle we're going to fight. We're doing this other thing. I love it. All right, number six, energize around a shared reality. And I'm curious about this because it's not a shared vision. It's a shared reality. What do you mean by shared reality? We're talking about a national politics a little bit because it's such an easy example, isn't yeah. it? Uh-huh. But it, it actually shows up in you know, the micro stories within organizations as well. 
Ken Blanchard's big on it. Everybody should be big on it. And that is, hey, we got to have a vision, a shared vision. I take it a step further because there are organizations and teams that actually have a shared vision. But when we as teammates have a different perspective of that vision, and you know perspective creates perception which drives my reality, if we don't have a shared reality, we're done. We're doing small things. And so in our book, we have what's called the energy map. And I'm going to set it up this way. I'll ask you, have you ever been in a meeting? You have three groups of people in this meeting. you got one group that wants to talk about the problem. Here's why we have this problem. Here's who caused the problem. you got another group that's fired up. They want to talk about the solution. Well, here's what we're going to do about it. And you have a third group that's sitting in the middle with their arms crossed, and they're actually confused about what actually is even going on. This happens over and over in a lot of meetings. And the energy map allows people to actually collectively align their perspective as it relates to the challenges and the issues they're facing. We first must have a shared reality and understanding. That means understand the data, the information, as Drucker said, as I said, too many people move to solutions before thoroughly understanding the problem they're facing. We must have a, a shared reality if we're going to get energized about our future. No, I agree with that. All right, number seven, mobilize hearts and minds forward. Yeah, mobilizing hearts and minds. So we can have a shared reality, of course, but if we're not doing anything with that reality, we're still not going to accomplish much. Yeah, you're talking about execution, getting things done. Right on, precisely. Overwhelmingly, our work with teams, we're seeing that the the boilerplate questions for execution, to your words, Donald, to your point, is really, it's very standard, and it's not differentiating teams. A lot of people are, those boilerplate questions are, how are we going to do it? What's next? What's the agenda? What do we have to have it done by? I spent a lot of time on the uh, the wild rivers of the West. I, I love to raft. And when you go rafting, have you ever rafted, down? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you guys have it out in Tennessee, too. you got some great rivers. Right now, there's five classes of rivers. Mm-hmm. And so when you get on a river and someone says, hey, we're going to go through class three rapids, you know we better be buckled up. We better have our stuff together because this is going to be a crazy ride. If we're going through class five, we're going through the Grand Canyon, baby. Well, if we're going to execute as a team, we're going to have to elevate our thinking. We're going to have to elevate our actions. And so in our book, we, we walk through these classes of questions that elevate a team's ability to go beyond the boilerplate questions so they can mobilize their hearts and minds forward. Craig, give me an example of a company that you think actualizes this well. I gave that earlier example, Tillamook is, of course, they're doing it right. On a broader scale, you know, of course, Ford Motor Company, especially during the Alan Mulally days, you step back at 30,000 feet and you look at the Do Big Things framework, these seven steps, and Alan Mulally, without articulating it, was leading the team with these seven steps. You know, there's some of the common ones and the reasons companies like Southwest Airlines get so much attention, but let's go actually smaller a little bit. Some of the unsung heroes. There's a nonprofit down in Florida called Give Kids the World. And what they do is kids with illnesses that may or may not be cured, they're facing a future that is one that, you know, I pray my children never have to face. You know, they get their wishes granted. They get to go down there, they get to go to Universal Studios or Disneyland and so forth. Well, Give Kids the World makes that happen. They're managing more volunteers than any other nonprofit in the United States, if not the world. And their success rate, they measure it by satisfaction, fulfillment, really, of how happy the kids are and their families. And when you talk to Pam, the CEO, their success rate is like 98%. They're knocking out of the park. And that's because Pam and her team, they didn't know it, 
we went in and, you know, and we're talking with Pam or interviewing Pam and we're hearing the stories and they're using this framework naturally. So there are companies actually all around. And what I'd encourage the listeners to do is to step back and say, why is that team successful? People are going to immediately say trust, collaboration. And then I would encourage people, challenge people, how are they creating that trust? Yeah. How are they creating that collaboration? As you talked, I kept thinking about Howard Schultz at uh, Starbucks and the culture that he's created. And of course, he left and the company started to sink and came back and it came back to life and sort of similar to a Steve Jobs thing. It also got me thinking that, tell me if I'm right or wrong here, all of this hinges on the leader. I mean, if the C-suite doesn't embody these values and these attitudes and this sort of action-oriented optimism that you're describing, that culture is not going to manifest this no matter how hard you try. Is that right? Well, I'm not going to say right or wrong, but I want to give hope to the listeners who aren't the CEO and really just find themselves on a team. What you're talking about when you talk about Schultz and others, they understand that changing behaviors is the business of the heart. So many people are trying to change behaviors because they think it's an intellectual exercise. We work with a pharmaceutical company, and I'm going to call this guy Adam, right? I don't want to give his name. And Adam wasn't the senior leader on this team, but his senior leader had enough self-awareness. You've talked about that in some of your other interviews. Had enough self-awareness to actually learn from Adam and Adam applied these seven steps in the Do Big Framework. And then Adam's senior leader is beginning to see the modeling. And of course, as you well know, begins to mirror what Adam's doing. So middle management can make it go up and down, too. Precisely. Well, you know, C-Suite's driven by results. And I'm convinced everything you're talking about here creates results. There's no question you get a great return on your investment. Greg, thank you for taking time. You got it, Donald. Thank you for doing what you do and keep on leading forward, man. We appreciate it. All right. We'll look for this book, Do Big Things by Craig Ross, Angela Pacchione, and Victoria Roberts. We didn't get to talk to Angela or Victoria, but boy, uh, an insightful conversation from you, Craig. Thanks again for joining us. Book comes out August 28th. Make sure to check it out wherever you buy books. All right, JJ. Yeah. Because it's really more about institutions and organizations. Yeah, yeah. But do you think this will help you become an Olympian? Zero doubt in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> you should have put a chapter in there on how do you know if you're, de- I don't know if you're delusional. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Five signs of the delusional yeah. personality. Step one. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll make it to the Olympics. I will. They're coming to LA. It's you happening. Can, you can buy tickets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs> if anything. Yes. No, that's happening. It's, it is happening. What about a tra- you could be a trainer? Fact, everybody, join me at the LA Olympics in and what is JJ. It, 2018. Oh, we could get a big viral campaign where they're just like, let JJ compete. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought in the last Olympics when uh-huh. Usain Bolt was running, because uh-huh. all those guys are fast. They're finishing yeah. within 1.5 seconds of each other about, yeah. right? Yeah. I think for every event, they should just get a normal dude. Yeah, and to go against them. Yeah, yeah, just to so show. So you literally just watch them get smoked, and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. they are, they're really good. Yeah. <laughs> Scott Hamilton. I, Scott Hamilton with, like, another guy. Now yeah. this guy's going to go and I try to do what Scott did. tribute. I volunteer as <laughs> tribute to be the normal guy in every event. <laughs> I just think it's a brilliant idea, and I think they should do it. Yeah, I'm Every in. country should send a normal guy. Yeah, I'm in. All right. I'm no more normal than me, so... Okay, on par with being delusional. (laughs) (laughs) You're so good at transitions. We have a guest next week. This Uh is literally the favorite conversation I've ever had on the podcast. Uh It's a Stanford University professor. His name is Robert Sutton, and he is an expert on 
a-holes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're a clean podcast. Uh-huh. There are children listening. In fact, more children are listening than, <laughs> than any, anybody else. Yeah, yeah. Children uh-huh. who run companies. They're listening. And so, you know, he really is he's an expert on jerks. Uh-huh. And, and he explains why jerks exist, how they think, and how to deal with them. Yeah. Because he believes, and I believe with him, that if there are jerks in your life, it's costing you your quality of life. Yeah. I mean, he goes into it. You're losing sleep. You have higher blood pressure. You, yeah. You're more likely to have a heart attack. You make less money. Oh, yeah. If you're affected by jerks. Mm-hmm. On and on. And he talks about this as a professor. He's written two books on this. One of them comes out in September, September 12th, I think. It's called The A-Hole Survival Guide, except you got to spell it out. In <laughs> the real world, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, you can get the book, but he's such a winsome guy. I mean, uh-huh. if you write books like this, you got to be a winsome guy. Yeah, yeah. And he, he's got some great survival techniques. I want to play a little clip of my interview with Robert Sutton to tease you, and you definitely want to listen next week. Here's a little clip of my interview. Finding ways to avoid contact with them because there's all this evidence that nasty behavior is incredibly contagious. In fact, one of the most reliable ways to get sick by jerks and turn into a jerk is to have a lot of contact with them. And so I have a whole different set of sort of um, a-hole avoidance strategies. One is, and so many of us work in open offices now, if you can do anything to get just a little further away from them, a few feet, a few extra desks where you're sitting, it has a huge effect. In fact, there's a couple of researchers, they tracked 2,000 workers in open offices for um, a couple of years. And what they found was that if you were within 25 feet of a, of a toxic person, you were likely to catch the disease and likely to be fired. There's also an upside to that. If you're near somebody who's a superstar, you're more likely to perform better yourself. All right, there you go. Yeah. I asked him at the end, how do you know if you're actually a jerk? You, you yourself, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like how do you diagnose? Uh-huh. And we went into why you become a jerk. Yeah, and he was yeah. very sympathetic. Yeah. You know, you're losing sleep. Uh, you're not eating well. You're, you know, whatever. Or you're up against a timeline. He said, yeah. if you've got a deadline, you're up against it, you're more likely to be a jerk. Yeah. Anyway, super, super helpful. Even in how to deal with them, he gives us some strategies. Just pay attention next week. Go to iTunes and subscribe to the Building a Story Brand podcast. And definitely don't miss that one. JJ, another fun episode. Yeah. I like working with you. You're anything, you're anything you. but a jerk. You are not an a-hole either. Being delusional does not make you. <laughs> does not an a-hole make. <laughs> I think I'm more delusional than you, so I shouldn't be. Uh, I shouldn't yeah, do that. No, I would agree with that. All right. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. 